So I've got a question for you this morning. I'm curious, when you hear the word supreme, when you hear the word supreme, what's the first thing that you think of? When I say the word supreme, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, I, I want to take a poll. I've got a few pictures, and I'm curious. We've got, uh, uh, by show of hands, how many of you thought of this first picture? <laughs> supreme pizza, right? Yeah, that was my first thought. Honestly, I, I don't know why it's called supreme. There's a lot better pizzas out there, but anyways. Um, okay, by show of hands, how many of you first thought of this? Matt Damon. Uh, yeah, Matt Damon was in a movie called The Born Supremacy. Uh, anyways, okay. Uh, third one, yeah. <laughs> All right, last, last picture. How many of you thought of this? The Supreme Court building. Yep. All right. Well, there's, there's a couple other thoughts I don't have pictures of, but I wonder if you're a Star Wars fan, if you hear the word supreme, you could have thought of Supreme Leader Snoke from, verse, or from episodes seven and eight. Don't know where he came from, and he ended up not being that supreme after all. Um, if, if you're a music fan and a little older than me, you may have thought of the Supremes. They sang, you can't hurry love, stop in the name of love, baby love, and a thousand other songs about love. Or the final one that I thought of when thinking of Supreme, if, if you're a Taco Bell fan like myself, no judging, we're in church, you might have thought of Nachos Supreme or Taco Supreme. But all this to say, the word Supreme, it isn't used very often in our culture, and most of the time when it's used, it, it really isn't describing something all that supreme. Out of the six things that I brought up today, probably the only one that could be worthy of the title or, or close to the title of supreme would be the Supreme Court because of its position. But I'd like to argue today, along with the Apostle Paul, that there really is only one thing in all of existence that's worthy of the title and the description of supreme. And it's actually not a thing at all, it's a person, and his name is Jesus. You see, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter of Colossians because he had received word from a brother in Christ that the church in Colossae was wrestling with false teaching. Now, we don't know exactly what the false teaching was, but we get from Paul's writing, we can glean that it had something to do with the worship and the acceptance of multiple gods or the belief in multiple deities or paying tribute to other superior spiritual powers. It's what we'd call polytheism, the worship of multiple gods. And it turns out that in Colossae, which was a, a town um, that was governed by Rome, they believed in polytheism. It was, a, it was a key portion of the Roman culture. Pastor J.D. Greer explains the Roman culture surrounding Colossae this way. He said, when it came to religion, Rome had basically two rules. Rule number one is you can worship whatever god you want. We don't care, worship the spaghetti monster in the sky. You can worship whoever you want. But rule number two is just don't say your God is the only God. Don't say your God is the best God. Don't say your God is the supreme God because if you think your God is the best God, you're going to think that you're the best people. And if you're the best people, you're gonna to wanna to rule. And Rome didn't want anything to do with that. So it's believed 
that some of the believers in the Colossian church had embraced this theology, this Greco-Roman understanding of polytheism, and Paul, he sends this letter to correct that teaching. And he sends it to make sure the Colossians understand that Jesus and Jesus alone is supreme. But what does supreme mean? Before we get too far in, we have to we have to give a description, and supreme, to be supreme simply means this. It means to be first. For Jesus to be supreme means that he is first. He's first temporally, he's the uncreated one, the pre-existent one, but more specifically, he's first positionally, meaning he is far above all things. He is first in rank. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter for the believers in Colossae to remind them that Jesus is first. And in our text this morning, we're going to find three descriptions, three descriptions of Jesus' supremacy. But before we get to the first one, I need your help today. I need your help. I need us collectively, the entire room, to proclaim a truth together. So each time that I reveal one of the three descriptions, I need you to respond to that description by saying this three-word phrase, Jesus is first. Can you do that for me? All right, we're going to practice. <laughs> Can you repeat after me, Jesus is first. Oh my, this room, we, we, gotta, we gotta say it like we mean it. We need to declare truth. Can we try that one more time? Declare it, mean it. Jesus is first. There we go. All right, no more practice. I'm going to reveal the first description. So there's three descriptions of Jesus' supremacy. And once I say the first one, then you respond with that response. First and foremost, Jesus is first over creation. Jesus is first. Yes. Jesus is the God of all creation. He's the one through whom all of creation was made. Would you look with me at verses 15 through 17? He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In these first three verses... Paul wants us to understand that Jesus is first over creation, meaning he is the supreme creator. Right away in verse 15, Paul makes this declaration. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And this word image, it doesn't mean that Jesus was merely a representative of God. Rather, Jesus being the image of God means that he was the manifestation of God. Jesus is not just a picture. He's not a portrait of God. He's not merely a reflection of God. Jesus is the God of the universe in human flesh. One scholar explained it this way, saying, the point is that in Christ, the invisible God became visible. The revelation of God in Christ is such that we can actually see him. You see, friends, though humanity at the very, shortly after the beginning of creation, humanity was separated from God due to disobedience, due to sin, and God no longer walked in the garden with humanity, but 
We see here that 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God himself, stepped down into the universe and revealed himself physically to us once again. In Genesis 1.27, we know the truth that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Thus, we know that humanity was created in God's image. But notice what the Apostle Paul says here this morning. He says, Jesus is, verb, Jesus is the image of God. Jesus was not merely in God's image. He wasn't a reflection. No, he is God's image, meaning he is God. And to add to this declaration of Jesus' deity, to make sure Paul's readers fully understand that Jesus is God, Paul adds this next phrase in the second half of verse 15. And he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, at first glance, this word firstborn seems a little alarming, but I assure you, Paul is not saying that Jesus was born or that Jesus was created. That heresy was actually condemned in 325 uh, in the Council of Nicaea. But what Paul is saying is he's using this term, firstborn, metaphorically, to state that Jesus has a special status over all of creation, much like the eldest child uh, in an ancient Jewish home had a special right, a special place, a special status in the family, so Jesus has a special status over all of creation. And the status is that he's God. Then Paul goes on to further describe Jesus' firstborn status in verses 16 and 17, stating that Jesus has this status because all things, meaning everything in creation, everything in the entire universe was created by him, through him, and for him. All of creation was made by Jesus, meaning it was his idea, it was his concept. All of creation was made through Jesus, meaning it was by his strength, through his power. And all of creation was made for Jesus, meaning everything was made for his glory and his purposes. But we see at the end of verse 17 that Paul wants us to understand not only is Jesus the creator, he's also the sustainer. He didn't create the world and leave it. He sustains it right now. Friends, the first description of Jesus' supremacy is that he's first over creation. One scholar uh, illustrated Jesus' supremacy, his superiority over creation, like this, saying it was like an artist. Jesus is the artist who crafted all of creation. This week, my wife and I um, were blessed to be able to travel back to Iowa and see family in eastern Iowa, and while we were there, we went with my mom and my siblings, and my dad and my siblings, um, to the National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium. I got it. Uh, I said it. It's, it's a long. The National Mississippi River Museum and Aquarium. And I was captivated, captivated by the pure beauty of God's craftsmanship of animals and insects that fill our rivers. I mean, there were numerous fish and, and numerous types of fish in all these tanks. There were alligator gar, long-nosed gar, American eel, common carp, big-mouth buffalo fish, wow, uh, sturgeon, blue catfish, channel catfish, flathead catfish, catfish as big as a 12-year-old. 
There was an alligator, there was a snapping turtle, and even something I'd never heard of called an alligator snapping turtle. We even got to touch Stingray. There was a Stingray exhibit where we got to put our hands into the tank and touch their backs. They felt like firm jello. It was a little weird. But they were captivating. And each fish was created with the most intricate details, having specific, beautiful, sometimes even scary designs. And as I walked around, I remembered that Jesus is the one who created them. He designed them. They're his craftsmanship, and it's beautiful. But as captivating as that is, how much more so should we be captivated that Jesus also created you and me? We were his design. Do you recognize this morning that Jesus is the artist who created you? Your body, your mind, your gifts, your abilities, your talents, your strengths, your design, it's from him. The God of all the universe formed you. He knitted you together. He sculpted humanity out of the dust. He breathed life into humanity. He constructed your heart, your mind, your soul, your body, your being, all of it. He created you. Do you realize this reality? Friends, Jesus created this world and everything in it, including you and me, and he is supreme over it. First and foremost, Jesus is first over creation. Three descriptions this morning of Jesus' supremacy. Now, do you all remember your phrase? Because I'm going to announce the second one. You remember? All right. Secondly, three descriptions of Jesus' supremacy, and the second description is this. Jesus is first over the church. Very good. That sounds great. Not only is Jesus God over creation, he's also God over the new creation. He's God over those who have been redeemed by his blood. Look with me at verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in verses 15 through 17, Paul declared that Jesus is God over all of creation. And now here in verses 18 through 20, Paul begins to narrow in his focus. He's saying not only is he God over all creation, he's also God over the church over his body. And by church, Paul means the universal church, or what we would call the capital C church. He's not just talking about uh, the church in Colossae, he's talking about the church all over the world. For all who believe in Christ, all over the globe, and throughout all of time, that's who Paul is focusing on, and he's saying Jesus is first over it. Paul is saying that Jesus is head over the collective assembly of new covenant believers throughout all of time and all of space. And he uses this organic metaphor of Jesus being the the head to declare that Jesus is in charge. He's the leader over the redeemed. He's the governing force over the church, the one to whom the entire body receives direction and purpose. But to prove that he's head over the church, Paul makes this second statement. 
He says that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It better be translated as he is the beginning that is the firstborn from among the dead. Uh, By declaring that Jesus is the beginning, he's saying that he is the founder of the church. Jesus is the initiating force of the church, the one who brought the new covenant into existence. You see, friends, the church, the body of believers in Jesus Christ, what Paul wants us to see is the church was initiated at the moment of Jesus' resurrection. When Jesus, he died a perfect death and rose from the grave, at that moment in history, the church in all who believed in him at that time was created in the church. The church had been formed. But look with me at at the final phrase in verse 18. Paul declares the central point of this entire letter at the end of 18 when he says that in everything, he, meaning Jesus, might be preeminent. So he says he's God over the church, or he's God over creation, he's God over the church, and then to make his point saying he is God over everything, he simply says it, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Now this word preeminent, it means to hold the highest rank. This is where we get the word supreme or supremacy. The NIV actually translates the end of verse 18 this way, saying so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul is declaring that Jesus is meant to be preeminent. He's meant to have supremacy, meaning that he is meant to be first in everything. In all things, Jesus is first. In all of creation, in all of the church, in everything, he is meant to be first. And then Paul reinforces this declaration of Jesus' preeminence, him being first in verses 19 through 20, stating that he's first because he's fully God, and he's first because all things, because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, peace would be made, and all the universe, all things would be reconciled to him. Friends, we must understand Jesus is the center of all things. In a nutshell, Paul is saying that all of existence is centered on one thing, and that one thing is Jesus. But it's important to clarify here that when Paul says Jesus is first in all things, he doesn't mean that Jesus is merely the number one person on a list of all things. For instance, for Jesus' deity, Paul is not saying that Jesus is simply the number one God on a list of many gods. No. Jesus being first means that he is first and only. For Jesus to be first in all things means he is the first and only God of all things. We can't say, we cannot say that Jesus is the first God of our lives and then go worship other gods as well. Jesus' supremacy requires him to be the only God in our lives. J.D. Greer gave a, a great illustration of this truth of being first and only that I'm going I'm to use here this morning because it applies to my life as well. He said that this concept of Jesus being first and only is, in how I think about God, is much like how I think about my wife. If I ever went up to my wife and said, you know, honey, on my list of women, you're number one, <laughs> I'd have some big problems my wife would look at me and say, Evan, I ain't going to be on no list. As a matter of fact, here's the list. It's me. You see, 
The same way I wouldn't go to my wife and say, honey, you're number one and there's number two and number three. No, my wife is in a class all of her own. There's no other women after her. And the same thing is with God. That same thought that God being first doesn't mean he's first on a list. It means he is first and only he is the list. Does this make sense? So I need to ask us this morning, is Jesus the only God of your life? Or is Jesus merely the number one God on a list of gods and idols that you worship? At a young age, I experienced some minor successes in music and theater, and I realized that people's applause, their recognition, their praise felt really good. The curtain call at the end of a musical drama or drama production, it it became addicting. So much so, I began chasing people's praise, their adoration, and I began worshiping my own success and my own accomplishments. And I thought, I thought, I grew up in a Christian home, and I thought that I could worship Jesus on Sunday mornings and spend the rest of my week pursuing me, myself, and I. And I'd even say things like I was a Christian. I would have even thought at that point that Jesus was number one, in my life. However, when Jesus is merely your number one on a list of things you worship, you begin sacrificing portions of your life to worshiping other gods. When Jesus is merely number one on a list, he simply gets incorporated into parts and into pieces of your life. But when Jesus is first and only, your life and everything in it revolves around him. You see, friends, Jesus doesn't want to be a sliver of your life. He doesn't want just portions of your life. He says, no, I am first and only. I must be supreme. So let me ask us again this morning. Is Jesus first and only in your life? More specifically, is he first in all things of your life? Is he first in your desires and your hopes and your dreams? Is he first in your schoolwork? Is he first in your career? Is he first in your singleness? Is he first in your marriage? Is he first in your parenting? Is he first in your time? Is he first in your finances? Is he first in everything? Because, friends, it's not good enough to merely acknowledge that Jesus is a God, nor is it good enough to say that Jesus is my number one God on a list of many. What Jesus desires and commands from all of humanity is that he would be the first and only God, that he would be supreme and preeminent. And for him to be supreme, he must be first and only. Brother and sister, if if you believe in Jesus, you are a member of his body. You're a member of the church. And Jesus is first over the church, meaning he is first and only over everything and everyone. Three descriptions of Jesus' supremacy. Jesus is first over creation. He's first over the church. And are are you ready for your response? Number three, Jesus is first over salvation. Jesus is is the one and only God who can reconcile broken and fallen sinners to a holy and righteous God. Look with me at verses 21 through 23. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The Apostle Paul, he's beginning to close his argument And now he's getting personal. He went from creation to the church, and now he's getting specific. When he says you, he's referring to you plural. Now he's focusing in on the Colossian church, and he's saying, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul's reminding them of the gospel, that apart from Christ, the believers in Colossae, along with you and me, were alienated from God. We were separated from him due to our sin. Not only were we separated from God, but we were hostile towards him in our hearts and in our minds. Due to our inherent sinfulness, our broken and fallen minds were naturally bent on hating God. We were filled with enmity, bitterness, hostility, hatred, resentment, and animosity towards the God of all creation. And as a result, we carried out evil deeds disobediently living life with no regard for God, his desires, or his purposes. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't yet received Christ and you're, you're hearing these words of, of sinfulness and separation from God and you're finding yourself confused. And maybe you're wondering how someone could be deemed as evil if they don't, if they don't know Jesus. And you might even be offended that I would make such a statement. You might be thinking, how could I be called evil when there are so many people in this world that are far worse than I am? Or maybe it's the other side. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've met a lot of good people in this world who aren't a Christian. But friend, the truth of the gospel is that every person apart from Jesus Christ is dead in sin. Sin simply means disobedience to God. In and of ourselves, human beings live following our own sinful desires, the passions of our flesh and mind, and we're slaves to sin. We declared this morning together Romans 3.23 that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we are all in need of saving from ourselves. But thankfully, friend, there's hope. And that hope comes from one person, the one who is first over salvation, meaning he is the only one who can supply it, and his name is Jesus Christ. We see this hope in verse 22, where Paul states, he, meaning Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the very God of all creation, the second person of the Trinity, he took on human flesh, and he came to the very earth that he created. He was born of a miraculous conception, though being fully human, he lived a perfect, sinless, utterly righteous, totally holy life, never once partaking in sin, and he, the perfect one, hung on a cross in our place so that we would not have to take death but he would take it for us. That he would reconcile, he would pay our sinful debt. That he would reconcile, meaning make right in his power what was made wrong by our sinfulness. He would reconcile all who would believe 
in him. And he would make them holy and blameless and above reproach. Friends, that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that the God of all creation would come to us and offer reconciliation to all who would surrender their lives to him and say, Jesus, you're first. I can't be first anymore. It's you. And the outcome of the gospel found here in verse 22, it's beautiful. That broken, unholy, sinful people would be made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. That guilty, stained, and helpless sinners would be made blameless through the blood of Jesus Christ. That those who once hated God would be made above reproach through the blood of Jesus Christ. Friend, you may have found yourself in this room this morning after years of searching for something or someone to make sense of this world, searching for something or someone to save you from yourself, looking for salvation from a life that doesn't make sense. And I'm here today to tell you that the only one who can quench that desire of your soul, the only one who can, can make right what's been made wrong, the only one that can bring clarity to a broken world. His name is Jesus. And because he is supreme, he is first, and he is the only one that can offer salvation. But if you're sitting here this morning and you're a Christian, you are a believer, please don't miss Paul's warning to us in verse 23. Paul states that we will be holy and blameless and above reproach before Jesus if indeed we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Christian, the Colossians were surrounded by a culture that didn't want anything to do with the supreme God. They wanted what they wanted. They wanted to worship any God they liked. Sound familiar? Though our culture might not say we have many gods or idols, they might not call it that, but we do. And Paul warns the believers in the midst of a culture like that to remain stable and steadfast in the truth that Jesus Christ is the one true and only God of all creation. That Jesus and Jesus alone is the one true God that Jesus and Jesus alone can provide salvation. But Christian, Paul warns us, he warns you and me, and says remain stable and steadfast in our salvation by remaining stable and steadfast in our pursuit of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is first over salvation. He's the only one that can offer it. He's the only one that's provided it. And we have to stay focused on him. So there you have it, three descriptions of Jesus' supremacy. And as I remind us of those descriptions, would you also respond to each one? Three descriptions of Jesus' supremacy. First, Jesus is first over creation. Jesus is first, Jesus is first over the church. Jesus is first, Jesus is first over salvation. Paul shares these three descriptions to make one point. Jesus is first. He's preeminent. 
He's supreme. He is first. And he must be first in everything. So I want to leave us all with one question this morning. Is Jesus first? Is he first in your life? More specifically, is he first in every aspect of your life? Is he first in all you do? Is he first in all you think? Is Jesus first? Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? Father, we are so thankful, so thankful for Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for your son and that he is first over creation. He is first over the church. He's first in all things and he's first in salvation. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.